everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Noah Green. I'm here with my good friend Frank Forza for Everyman BJJ podcast. Um, it's a Friday edition, so not our normal spot, but I thought uh, uh, took your suggestion of having, doing catch up and um, uh, go over all things jujitsu, the experience of what it's like to be every man in jujitsu and, and trying to live this uh, martial arts life um, on and off the mat. So with that, I'll kick off with um, um, you said you had a you had a boatload of topics you wanted to cover today, Frank. So how are you doing? Well, a boatload of topics, almost all of those topics reserved for Sunday because we do do the Sunday episode, 1.30 Pacific time, 4.30 Eastern time, p.m. on Sundays. So we have a lot of um, material for Sunday. But today I wanted to more talk about the Remember, I've done a couple of TEDx speeches. I've been very fortunate to do those TEDx speeches. They're very hard to get those speeches. So I want to talk about, because I have people blow up my phone, like, how can I get a TEDx speech? Can you, know, can you introduce me to the organizers? And I mean, people, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a coveted thing. And there are mm-hmm. people a lot more successful than me, that are way more successful than me, that haven't had a TED or a TEDx. Right. So there's a there's a lot of people that want it. It's prestigious. It's hard to get. And I got my first one on jujitsu, which was very hard in 2016 for a couple of reasons. Number one, it wasn't like even in 2016, it wasn't like the whole world just opened up to jujitsu and UFC and MMA. I mean, the world is still catching up. There's still a lot of pockets where people don't really know what jiu-jitsu is and it's like it's you know it's a kind of a martial art it's kind of like karate there's still a lot of that especially when you're knocking on the door of a college university and the academics right so i wanted to talk noah about what it took to convince a committee to give me a shot and then i want to talk about sort of the bittersweetness of it because on the one hand, you you know, you feel like, oh, this is my big chance. This is my big opportunity. I'm going to have the stage and and so many great things are going to come my way. And so you're just expecting this this launch, right? This Trojan horse. And then on the other hand, there's real the real life. What, what really happens? And I was telling you about the story of a world champion who had called me a couple of days after winning his world title. We can if I can remember, we can bring that story in. But but I want, so I basically wanted to talk about, since we're here, we're almost, gosh, we're almost, we're knocking on the door of, you know, of the last of, of 2020, right? A fascinating, challenging, opportunistic roller coaster of a year. They're really a gut check. This is one of those gut checks. Like, where is your life? Like, where are you going? What are you doing? Are you doing the right things? Are you around the right people? This is definitely like, this is like, uh, you know, the year of wokeness or something, right? It's like the year of wokeness. So definitely 2020 definitely got everybody's attention. That's one thing. You are not, it got your attention no matter who you are, what you're doing. You're going to remember 2020 the rest of your life. That's going to be one that just jumps out. A lot of memories. So 
since we're already we're at the end of 2020, getting near the end of 2020, we have to talk. This is our inaugural year of Every Man BJJ. I think we're almost on pace. We've done one a week, so we've been accountable, right? We got some really good content there. We don't have a lot of viewers. We got some great content. We chop it up, slice it up, promo reel it. We got some some diamonds of content in our you know 40 some weeks. We do. And I can feel that as a person, as a storyteller, as a journalist, as a writer, as someone who's been doing this a long time, I can tell like when, man, we kind of hit the mark on that one. We got some good stuff, original content. But anyway, what I, the point I'm making is I have been remiss because I did these TEDx talks and it's so worth talking about it to people because they give them a window. Hey, if you want a TED talk or you want a TEDx talk, how do you go about it? Giving you a window into my mind. And the whole experience, because it's a phenomenal ex- experience, it's a phenomenal preparation. And then the aftermath of that, your expectations versus what might really happen for a lot of people, right? So I guess, Noah, you know, you you know, you and I have been friends for a number of years. Um, I, you know, I can just keep talking for the next 20 minutes about this. But just to make sure I address something you want me to go, is there anything that jumps to mind when you hear me? at least set the stage for, for talking about this TEDx experience? Um, you know, I, 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 I did call this uh, a boatload of things because I think that for the, for the viewer uh, and for me participating in this with you, um, this is taken through the lens of um, Jujutsu Black Belt who brought the message of the sport out. And you did it with, with some contacts with uh at the time, current UFC fighters, uh, Misha Cupcake Tate um, and Anne Malin. Um, um, so, uh, you know, my, my, my ask is, if, as you describe all these things, is how did you get them to, uh, how did you convince them um, to uh, come, on, come onto the stage with you? And why did you choose um, for them to do a demonstration? Um, as opposed to something else or what were your options really for you to choose from? But that's what I, that's what I have for you. Yeah, that is a great, um, that is definitely something I should, should touch on. So let me, let me go back and rewind for a second. How did I get the TEDx? You know, there is a lot to be said for being prepared and working hard. There is a lot to be said for luck. There is something to be said for right place, right time. You just got to be ready, right? When something comes, whether it's you used to work on Wall Street, whether it's a stock and it just happens to be the right time, the right alignment of stars and you love a stock, whatever it is, you got to be ready. Because a lot of people hesitate. When a moment presents itself, a lot of people get that lucky moment and they let it expire. Same one a jujitsu mat. There's a moment there. For the Kimura, the, 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 your opponent makes the mistake and for some reason touches the mat, puts that hand on the mat. It's there for the Kimura. You miss it or you miss the window for the sink in the guillotine, whatever, and it's gone. It evaporates. And so I got a little bit lucky one night. At a, it was it was Chinatown, Las Vegas. Anybody who's who's never been there, it's worth it. It's open all night. You can go eat really good Chinese, Japanese, Thai food, three in the morning. And, and, and just that's the part of town that truly never sleeps. Like that part is just any day of the week and they're eating late. So anyway, I was there getting some tea with a journalism friend, a guy who spends a lot of time. There's underground tunnels in Las Vegas. I don't know if you know them, those storm drains. 
And in oh, yeah. those storm oh, yeah. drains, yeah, a lot of homeless people go and live in those storm drains. And every and so there's like this whole secret life, these whole secret life and secret societies under those storm So Matt, Matt O'Brien's his name, Matt was a journalist. He was formerly the journalist of the year in Nevada, Nevada journalist of the year, great journalist. And he had a heart for the homeless. So he'd go in these underground tunnels and tell their stories. Every once in a while, a homeless person would die in those tunnels because the rains would come in. They wouldn't know they'd be sleeping or something. And you'd see a dead body turn up. So Matt, heart of gold, spending time in these underground tunnels, uh, writing books about it. So Matt and I are having tea one day. And, you know, we're talking about whatever. I had done some freelance writing where he was my editor. And he just said something about, hey, there's a TEDx, there's a TEDx event at UNLV. You might be interested. And I don't know. I think I had mentioned something about wanting to do some speeches, some lectures, because I've done some lectures at colleges. And Matt just said, oh, by the way, there is a TEDx event coming up at UNLV. And here's one of the organizers. Reach out to them. Email them. So I did. And when I emailed them, this is what you have to be careful. This is very important for anyone listening. You know, when you reach out to someone, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a doc, you're doing a documentary, you want to collaborate, whether you're a salesperson, when you reach out to someone, you're speaking to an individual. There, you know, you don't know what you're walking into. You don't know what's important to them, right? You don't know. So the TEDx committee, I'm thinking. The only thing that I knew was reading some of their literature that the, that the I got lucky here again. The event was like something like living in the extreme. That was like the theme because a lot of TEDx events and TED events have themes. Not all of them. Some of them are very diverse, but they often have themes. One of the most recent TEDx events here in Henderson was like climate change. That's a big thing that that the TED community is doing a lot of events and a lot of speakers on climate change. So a lot of times there are themes. So if I went to a TEDx organizer or a TED organizer and said, hey, I want to give a speech on jujitsu at your climate change, right? That's really far-fetched. And, the, and there might be some weird way I can work to, you know, there's probably some clever, ultra-creative way where jujitsu creates sustainability and helps the environment. But it's a real far stretch, right? That's not the time to knock on the door. So I look at the theme of TEDx UNLV and I'm like, hey, living in the extreme. Well, at, at some point, since the mainstream didn't catch up, you know, late to catch up to cage fighting and MMA and jujitsu, late to embrace it, we were once upon a time extreme and still in many parts of the world in 2016, we were extreme. Like, what are you doing? Why would I put my kid in this? This is going to get people hurt. Is this legal? Is it legal for you to choke me like that in practice and do that to my arm? How is this legal, right? Once upon a time, watching cage fighting, when people were punching each other on the ground, people had been indoctrinated and programmed by the old Queensberry, the rules going back to the United Kingdom, where you can't punch a man, you can't punch another person while they're down, not in a legal sport fight. So that people hadn't realized, people who didn't even really follow boxing were like, how is he or she allowed to punch their opponent on the ground? Extreme. Right. It took a lot of re-education. The fighting is in our DNA. Dana White going to speak at Oxford, at Stanford, at Harvard, and basically telling them this is how we did it. The, the near impossible. 
And oh, by the way, fighting's in our DNA. If you want to, if you choose to be ignorant of that, you choose to be ignorant of it. But it's in our DNA. It's part of us. And you're either going to allow it to be the case consensually, or you're not, or it's going to be underground. But are you going to allow pole vaulting, which kills more high school kids than, than most anything in any given year? You're going you're gonna to outlaw rock climbing. You're going to outlaw motor racing, whatever. So anyway, living in the extreme, I get, okay, I read that. I know that. I'm a writer. I'm thinking, okay, here's the name of this organizer I'm emailing. I got one shot with the pitch, right? I got one shot, those first couple of paragraphs to be like, why should you give me a chance? Why am I here? And what I played more than I normally would, I was lucky that I have a background in journalism, working for major newspapers, working for a TV station. I really played that up more because I thought that would play in academia. A lot of the TEDx's and TEDs, the organizers, the people who have the licenses to hold these local events, a lot of them are academics, right? They're, they got PhDs, they got master's degrees, they're very well embedded in academic communities. And so I wanted to take an experience that might play better in an academic. And then, you know, working for a major newspaper like the Review, Las Vegas Review Journal, Salt Lake Tribune, Fox 5 TV News, I thought that brand might buy me a couple of paragraphs, right? I can sneak that in. So I played up my journalism background just so they didn't think I was crazy, right? When I hit them with the jujitsu, just so they didn't think I was crazy. Like, all right, hey, let me legitimize myself here. I was a newspaper reporter. I covered real news. I covered cops and courts. I covered, you know, obituaries. I covered hard news. So I'm not this crazy martial arts guy here. So I reached out to her, to the to one of the organizers, and thank goodness she, had, you know, I had I didn't hear some for like a week or two. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, and I followed up. It's, oh, I'm glad you followed up, whatever, whatever. Um you know, I'm not so sure about this, but I said, can I give you a call then? Can I at least talk to you, right? You know, just um, let my energy shine through, let my passion shine through, be able to ask her questions. So I got the phone call in and I, basically what I said is like, look, because this, this lovely woman had never, she did not know what jujitsu was. It was a blank screen. I mean, she wasn't even thinking Taekwondo karate. So it was just blank, like, well, what is that, right? So I said, listen, why don't you come by? I live downtown. Why don't you come by and I'll show you a demonstration, okay? And uh, so she comes by one day with an uh, another like college professor type. And she, he gets there. So I've already talked to her, sweet lady, nice lady. She's going to let me show her, but it's still non-committal at this point. It's not like, you know, I'm going to do that. It's not looking that good, but it's like, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to show me what this is. So she's supposed to come there and meet with another guy, like this academic kind of guy, PhD kind of guy. And he gets there like 20, 30 minutes before her. And so when he gets there, um, he, we, we start talking. I had never met him, right? And he has, he has a vote. So his vote is important, right? This is one of the voters. You need his vote. I don't know him from Adam. He comes in, I meet him. And he said something in like the first minute or two, because I explained, you know, the, mar you know, the martial arts, whatever. And he said, well, I just want you to know, I'm really not in that UFC stuff. And I really don't care about martial arts. So he said, this in like the first 90 seconds, two minutes. And I'm thinking, so I know, oh my goodness, like I have this, this guy just told me like up front, like basically this is going to be a hard sell. I don't, I'm not really into this. This guy's like 55, 58 years old, right? 
he is not, he's just like, I'm not impressed. Kind of like I'm supposed to be here, but I'm really not interested. Right. So I, I, you know, I'm like, Oh man, like she doesn't even know what it is. He's telling me in the first two minutes. So this is, this is where people out there listening, this is where you can't get discouraged. You still have to keep, you still have a chance to present. You cannot be discouraged just because someone doesn't know what it is. Somebody blew you off. I got blown off the first week or two when I sent my original email. Um, and so now, now this guy's telling me not my thing. I don't understand this. Just not, not, not my thing. And so anyway, when they came, and I showed them, you know, and, and it was very lucky because there was a chess board nearby. They had these big chess pieces. They were like um, almost like um, stuffed animal sized chess pieces. And they, there was a chess piece there. So I was trying to make that analogy, which many have made, of physical chess. And I had a training partner there and I did some demonstrations. And really what got them, Noah, in this case, what got them, it wasn't the physical demonstration of the jujitsu that helped me a little bit i'll explain what really got them was i talked more about the philosophies of the martial arts the philosophies of jujitsu and how those philosophies and those principles fit on in many different ecosystems in many different industries we are not so different from people in other ecosystems we have a lot of the same principles a lot of the same um you know, struggles and dancing with fear and faith. And we have a lot of the same things. So I talked about it in very universal and philosophical terms in a way that anyone could relate to this refinement of, of a person, of, of people building, of rebuilding yourself, of this dance with fear and this and, and the commitment there and, and all of the lessons there and the meritocracy of the mats. I talked a lot about universal themes, philosophy themes that might appeal to, say, an academic, right? That might appeal to them. I didn't just beat them upside the head with all jujitsu, right? So anyway, at the end of it, she was saying, you know, the, the one organizer was saying something effective. Well, listen, we might have room for a two or three minute exhibition. So you would you won't be a speech. You'll be an exhibition. We'll We'll let you like show a couple moves, whatever, and someone will play like drums or some upbeat music and it'll be something in between the speeches. So I'm thinking, hey, that's good by me, man. I got my foot in the door. I mean, it's not a speaking, it's not a speaking role, right? I'm not spreading a message, but I get to do a little bit jujitsu on stage and spread a little awareness about that. And, you know, and I could at least have TEDx, little little asterisk TEDx on my resume now, a TEDx demonstrator or something, right? Exhibitor, whatever we are. Um, and so, but so what I kept doing, though, is I kept in contact with her and I kept kind of bringing this thing to life more in a speech way. So then I talked to her a couple of weeks later. She's like, maybe we'll give you five or six minutes. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a speaking role now, right? Like I'm talking to her. I'm painting this picture. It's getting a little better. She started to understand it a little more, how it fits in with the extremism. I'm, I'm letting her know how popular this is. Like, hey, some people actually really love this. This is actually pretty popular. You'd be surprised how many interested clicks and viewers. Because they're really up at that point. There hadn't been, I think there might have been one or two other like jujitsu 
Rich Franklin had given a TEDx. Um, you know, someone with one FC, I think, had maybe given one. It was very hard to find someone. I'm not saying there wasn't someone else out there, but it was very hard to find someone who'd been given the stage for jujitsu at that point. Maybe there were one or two, but it was few and far between. So, so the organizer comes back, look, we might have five or six minutes. Next time I talk to her, she's like, we might have seven or eight minutes for you. <laughs> I went up to seven or like, wow, I went up to seven or eight minutes. And then later I talked to her, you know, a couple weeks later, it's like, we, we're going to give you 10 or 11 minutes. <laughs> so, and a normal, a normal TEDx speech is 11 to 17 minutes. Every once in a while you get a 21 minute, Tony Robbins or someone like that gets 21, whatever minutes. Some people, maybe rarely someone gets more, but by and large, they're between seven, 11 to 17 minutes. Every once in a while, 21 minute, every once in a blue moon. So I'm like, I went from like, I went from meeting one of the voters, one of the people on the committee who was basically like, I'm not into this. I I really don't want to be here. Like, I never heard of this. I'm not interested in this. I went from that, like almost a definite no to a woman who didn't know about jujitsu to a two minute demonstration to now an 11 minute speech, full fledged TEDx speaker, like stars align, right? Some of that's luck. But, but some of that is what I call in journalism, polite persistence, polite persistence. You got to follow up when you don't hear from somebody and it's an opportunity you're interested in, just even if you have to get rejected, you just got to put them, you got to reach out to them. And even if it's a rejection for now, you got to reach out to them. So the, I followed up. I didn't just let it like, Hey, you know, well, I guess, I guess that was no, it's not no until they tell me no, until I'm told no, it's not, no, it's not a no because they didn't email me back. That's not a no. A no is, if you care about it, get the no. And at least when you get the no, don't be upset, but it leaves the door open to do something else with, with, with those people or a company in the future to collaborate. Don't be bitter. Be a good sport about it. There'll be other opportunities. Also, try to get the feedback. If there had been a no, I would try to get feedback as to how can I improve my chances. Get them to give you the feedback. How can I improve my chances to get, a, a, you know, you're going to be doing more TEDx events. How can I improve my chances? What can I do? What can I read? You know, can I come to the event? Can I talk to you after the event? Can I do an informational interview with you? Can I put you on my podcast? Whatever, right? These are the things I would have done if I'd gotten the hard no. So we went from not looking really good to you got 11 minutes, kid. Now. No, let me let me stop here because we still got to talk about Misha. Anything, you know, I I want you to be included here. Anything that that, that jumps to mind? As no, keep talking. going, keep keep going because you know this is as I said, there, I, there's a boatload of stuff here. There's a boatload of uh, of uh, of questions that uh, that I wanted to have answered, and you're you're answering them with, without me asking. So, no, this is perfectly fine. You know, people want to know these things, Frank. They want to know, like, you know, what's the process like? You know, what did you go through? And, you know, the only thought that comes to my mind now as you're telling me this narrative is how were you addressing the content as you see you're getting more and more time? Because it's easier to always edit out stuff. It's harder to expand. And you're saying this is taking place. This is uh you know this is the the storyline here it's growing over over time and so you know you've got time to to 
to, uh, you know, for it to gestate a little bit, and, you know, for you to build upon what you're going to say, what, how did that affect your craft, you know, you know, as you're going through this? Well, first, let me say that looking at everything I had said before, right, how did we get there? How did the TEDx speech present itself, the process, you know, turning no's into yes, right, or almost definite no's into a yes. And if you look at it, you really put it under a microscope, there's a couple of elements there. It's, it's a little bit of luck, right? Luck is an element of our life, so there's a little bit of luck. My buddy just happened to know the organizers and just happened to know, oh, by the way, an event, I, I didn't know that event was coming up and I could have easily missed the nomination process. The other thing's unique for me is I nominated, this is horrible. This is, it, it's, it's unfortunately, it's unintentionally egotistical. I nominated myself. <laughs> I mean, normally you have to get someone else to nominate you. That's the way the TED or TEDx process works. Someone else nominates you. That is generally the way it's done. I wound up essentially nominating myself by knocking on the door. It's like, well, I don't know anyone who's going to nominate me. So I'm just here with an idea. And that's not necessarily the best way to go about it. It's not impossible. But I didn't go, I didn't have that. Sometimes it can be better if you have somebody who's recommending you, especially if they know someone who's maybe on the committee, right? I didn't. So I came in cold, brother. I came in cold calling. That's, that's hard, right? So we got lucky. We had the right message. I got very lucky that living in the extreme was the theme. I got very lucky that I knew not to come in too heavy with the martial arts stuff, to tone it down and to stay with a more mainstream universal philosophy theme. You know, know who you're talking to. Build that trust. Let them know you're not crazy. You're not violent. Talk their language. Get Ask them questions, get feedback, what's important. Because this is the thing with a TEDx speech or a TED. It's not about what you necessarily want to speak about. Noah wants to go there and Noah wants to speak about financial accounting. Well, that's great. But this event and these organizers don't have, don't have anything to do with accounting. So what else do you have in that bag? You got to be ready if you wanted to increase your chance of TEDx Maybe you'd have 10 different speeches you'd give on 10 different topics. Maybe you have 20. Maybe you're a real pro and you have 50. The more that you can adapt what you're going to speak about, the topic, the better your odds. So they could have had another theme. I think I could have found a creative way to get there. I just would have picked, you know, I might have, I might have talked about journalism, right? I might, my TEDx might have been on journalism. If that had been the button, right? If, 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 it, if, if I had went in, and I had looked and said, hey, there's an opportunity for me to talk about creativity or journalism or storytelling. If that's what a committee was looking at, that would have been my pitch. I wouldn't have did a, a jujitsu one. So I was really looking. I, I did not go in looking to give a jujitsu speech when I first got wind. I did not. I was not thinking jujitsu speech. Jujitsu speech came up to me afterwards when I saw the living within the extreme and I saw that it was Las Vegas based. And I thought, wait, this was something I told them. Did you know, they didn't know this. Did you know, oh, by the way, committee, did you know that Las Vegas is the mecca of fighting, is the mecca of, 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 of boxing and sport fighting? Did you know this is the mecca in all the world? You're holding your event in a city that's that. So that gave it some gravity because they're thinking, well, wait, it's a Las Vegas event. What are we known for? Well, apparently we're known for putting on great 
the best prize fights in the world, right? Vegas does that. If it's in Vegas, it's the biggest fight you can put on, bro, in general, by and large. So that, I was able to push that button. Living in the extreme, these are kind of, some people thought they were extreme sports. But what I'm saying is, I my brain honed in on that pitch only after sizing up the calculus of, wait, okay, I'm an expert on journalism and storytelling and creativity, but they don't have that. I might be an expert on, you know, whatever, a few other things, but it's not that. If I have any shot, it's going to be at this jujitsu or UFC or combat sports thing. So know your audience, know what is their event about, know the city that you're in and be able to give them context. Because if I hadn't told them, hey, by the way, we're the Mecca. We hold the biggest events, whatever. It, and I even gave them stats on what's the economic impact of fighting on Las Vegas. I mean, it was like it was like well over a quarter of a billion dollars, like annually, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's shocking how much pre-COVID, how much money in, over a 10-year period, the fight sports. I mean, just, just like Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor in Vegas, I mean, that, that brought in hundreds of millions of dollars in in revenue beyond the fight, just in people and people paying, you know, for parking, people gambling, people at restaurants, people with their, you know, hotels. So I provided all this, you know, I went above and beyond to show like, we're not just these, these rinky dink, whatever, right? We're not crazy wackos. We are real people. We are college educated people. We are journalists. We are, and we are, we are multiplying. And so I had to have, after I, talk their language and met them at their level, their academic level, slowly I wove in these little factoids that gave context that started to paint the picture of, well, what would a speech or a demonstration look like? Why would anyone care? And by the end of that, I think they realized, wow, um, people probably do care about this. This is, the, the, the stats are pretty interesting. Vegas being this place that has this this fight culture and all these great fighters and attracting them from all over the world, that's interesting. And then the fact that there were no, there really aren't many TEDx events that even shine a light on that or have those kinds of speeches. So the stars align. Now, when I went to write the speech to your question about, I went from a two or three minute demonstration to eight minutes to, to 10 minutes to 11 minutes. So the one thing that I realized in the whole thing is I was like, well, you know, one that we were we're in even in 2016 i could see i call it the golden age of girl power now i'm sorry to you know offend somebody if, the, if they're offended by the word girl i mean you know women female empowerment but it just sounded good in terms of the wordplay to say the golden age of girl power that was just a phrase that i coined that we're in the golden age of girl power and i remembered in ufc like this is going back years you know one of the interesting stats we had you know, they would compile us data was like, who's who's coming to the live UFC events? Who's buying the tickets? Because they used to give the tickets away for free. Right. That, that was how they that was the only way they packed the house. So they used to have like they used to black out parts of the arena that didn't sell. Right. To make it look like a lot of people were there and they weren't. So now people really are buying them. UFC events really are stand, uh, you know, selling out. And who is paying this money, 125, 150, 250, 500, 1,000 a ticket? Who's paying that? And one thing that was shocking was that I think this is going back years. It's going back like at least like 10 years or so. It was like 
40% of the people at the fights were women. This is, forget about, this is pre-Ronda Rousey. This is before Ronda Rousey and the women come into the UFC and are fighting. It's like, you look around the arena, and like 40% of them are women consistently, and they're enjoying it. They're not there because their boyfriend or, you know, husband just dragged them there. They are into it. So that was a revelation, like, wait, women are liking this almost as much as men. This is not just a men thing. This is not just an 18 to 34 year old thing, right? This is not that. There is something. Fighting is wired in our DNA. Even a lot of the women, even if they don't know it, when they get there, they wind up being like, wow, this is interesting. Governors who didn't like it come to the event. They invite them. Wow. This, this gave me it gave me, gave me goosebumps. This made the, 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 the arena was electric. Now they get it, right? Some people, it takes them to go to the live event to get it. Some people with jujitsu, they're not going to understand if we verbalize it. When they get on the mat, sometimes at some point the light bulb goes up. Oh, I get the addiction of this. I get the value of this, right? Sometimes you got to be in the mix, in the trenches to understand about, okay, it's easy to sit up in a helicopter in a helicopter's perspective. Oh, that, that sucks. That's terrible. That'll never work. Go down in the trenches. Play around with it. Oh, ah, I get it. I felt that way with cryptocurrency, by the way. I'm not a big fan. There's a lot of hype and whatever, junk and ton of hype and exaggeration and shenanigans in cryptocurrency. But guess what? When I spent some time in that realm with the financial technology, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of potential. There's going to be a lot. A lot of mega, mega millionaires come out of that space, hype or not. It's, it, things are going digital. When you get down in the trenches, you're like, my goodness, there are some, people, some people are going to make a lot of money in that space. And, and, and we're going to see that in the next 10 years where we're just going to see crazy money in these digital currencies. And that is coming whether we like it or not, whether we think it's hype or not, it's coming. And so anyway, I had to do that education. So I was thinking it's the golden age of girl power. And I thought, you know, what would be beautiful would be to share the stage with um, a, you know, a female who embodies that, who embodies this, mo mo this empowerment of women, not just economically, not just professionally, not just, but in, in one of the hardest sports in the world, like female physical empowerment, someone who really demonstrates that and say jujitsu and UFC are a big part. They're, they're almost like a, they're a metaphor for that, that, that empowerment. These aren't just Hollywood actors. I mean, these are really bad, you know, bad uh, uh, female fighters, right? They are in, uh, bad in the good sense of the way. Like, they can seriously kick butt. A lot of these women and female fighters can kick a guy's butt, which is crazy. The whole world's been flipped on its head. So I thought, well, I started to entertain that. I thought, I see so many... I see the surge of women that are training in jiu-jitsu and wrestling now. Beautiful wrestling got tons of women training now and the numbers are someone told me i think the last that i looked it was like females are now like 10 percent or so of the high school wrestlers now that's a i coached a a, high, a female high school wrestler years ago that is it they were they were once in a blue moon you saw a female wrestler now i mean you're seeing we saw one in north carolina a female wrestler won the whole state title against the boys 103 pounds i think she won the state title it was crazy right so i thought I want to, to, to give some shine to the ladies because they're training just as hard as us and they're about to take over the world and their numbers are growing in mass in jujitsu 
And in UFC, they fight just as hard as we do. They train just as hard as we do. And they, they, are, are, they personify the, um, the power of jiu-jitsu, the transformative power of jiu-jitsu. It's changing the way we think about so many things. And so, you know, so I thought, well, who am I going to get? And I had known Misha Tate because I had trained with Misha Tate going back years. But when she was, when, you know, when her and Brian Caraway were boyfriend, girlfriend and very serious. And I had trained with both of them going back and I had met her, trained with her a little bit. Um, and, and I had interviewed her for a few stories, too. And I thought, well, let me take a let me take a. a a swing and maybe, maybe Misha will do, you know, we'll do that. Let me see if she's interested. Now, the issue there was, well, what would it look like? Would we, would we alternate speaking time, half me, half her? How would that look? And it wound up being easier to just, okay, let's have someone do the demonstration. And so Misha, God bless Misha. They just had, just had her second kid, man. She's got beautiful kids. Her and Johnny Nunez are together. And she was so humble to do it, to, to agree to do it and not. And, you know, Misha didn't have a speaking role. I did mention her in the speech, but that was very humble of her. She could have said, you know, I'm not interested to just be on that stage. I mean, Misha's a lot bigger than I, I think Misha's got like a million um, Instagram followers, probably more than that now. Right. Misha, Misha, I think she got a million or two million Instagram followers. So she's huge. She's way bigger than I am. Right. And and so that was so humble. Reminded me, by the way. There's a singer named Michael McDonald. If you never, if you never heard him, go listen. I mean, he sounds like, and you know, this, he's a guy that's, he's the white, the a, a white guy with the blackest voice you've ever heard. Like normally, when you hear Michael McDonald sing, you're gonna swear that's a black guy. You're gonna be, that's a black dude. No white dude on earth can sing like that. And Michael McDonald can naturally. And Michael McDonald is very much like what Misha did. Michael McDonald always dropping in with Sting, with Toto with some of the greats and say, I'll sing, you know, with Patti LaBelle, I'll sing backup for you. It's okay. I'll just sing the hook for you. And he didn't always need the glory. He didn't always need to be out in front. His name didn't need to be on it. So Misha Tate pulled a Michael McDonald and was just like, whatever you need. Then I had my niece, Annalyn Molina, who was a little, you remember her little blue belt phenom was, you know, a little Latina blue belt phenom, Spanish speaker and, and just real, you know, real clean cut. And she'd won a couple tournaments. So I thought, We'll get her. She's the young age, the new age coming up. Misha is the established, you know, pioneer UFC champion. And so that all came together. And 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 I'm so grateful that Misha and Annalyn agreed to do it. And we got 11 minutes. Now, this is where it gets interesting, which because you spend, I mean, Noah, I spent so many hours in the, there's a Starbucks in Henderson. I spent so many hours into the wee hours of the morning at that place when they were, you know, when they were closing down and, you know, and, and bringing the people, the people who bring the, the coffee beans and the donuts and whatever at night, right. Those people that come at three or four in the morning and they bring it in there. This is a 24 hour one in Henderson's. I was there so many late nights with, with index cards. And I was thinking, this is my Trojan horse. This is my one chance. I got to hit this out of the park. And what I would say is, now, so someone like me doesn't like scripted speeches. Doesn't mean I'm not good at scripted speeches. I don't like scripted speeches. You know this. You know I like improvisation. I'm kind of like Jim Carrey. I heard Jim Carrey talk about this on Howard Stern uh, yesterday. He's like, most of the magic of a Jim Carrey comedy 
it doesn't come from the script. It comes from him reading the script and going off script and ad-libbing. Or he does the lines and then they keep the camera running and then he'll say something in that and they'll keep that and then they, they throw away the original line. They're like, well, why? He just, you know, he had one scene of Ace Ventura where he was talking with, I mean, he's talking with his butt cheeks. And he talked about, you know, he has a thing where he's talking with his butt cheeks. And he said, he said he had done that on In Living Color, but that was totally ad-libbed. That was ad-libbed into a scene. It wasn't written into the script. So I'm very much, I think things are very alive when we're spontaneous, when we're improvisational. I think we're more authentic when we're not pausing and when we're just really, you know, stream of consciousness. Got to be careful because it can get us in trouble. So anyway, with the TEDx, they want a scripted speech because they want to see your speech. You're going to their event, their stage. And it's a representation of them. And if you were to say something improper or, you know, just just ridiculous or absurd or mean and nasty, they want to know that. So they want to screen that speech by overwhelmingly. What do you got? And then they also want to be there as a resource to help you in, to 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 write that speech. And so. Um, I. I wrestled a lot with that speech. I really did. And with the scriptedness of it. And the the one thing that, that surprises you a little. So this is the, this is the thing. And and I mean, I'm so grateful for both TEDx, both TEDx speeches made me grow muscles that I didn't have before. They brought out, they, they, they brought out an urgency. They, they made me a sponge to retain information. They taught me um, how to give speeches, how to, how to do things under pressure, how to, pitch this, how to get the yes, how to earn the yes to even get on stage, right? The fight before the fight. And so I'm so great. Amazing process. But what I would say is that when it was all said, now we can talk about the content of the speech a little bit later, but when it was all said and done, I thought, wow, this TEDx speech is going to open so many doors. And it, it really didn't. And it's probably because I didn't utilize it the right way. I didn't market myself the right way. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I also felt like, and that speech has probably gotten somewhere around 160, 175,000, 180,000 views last time I looked, somewhere in there. So it's not, it's, it, it, it's performing a little bit, right? It's not a mega speech, but I've had people here and there, they'll reach out to me. Hey, I liked your speech. What are you up to? Do you have any advice about this? I've had people, I get emails every now and again about that still four years, four or five years later now. But I would say that I did have the expectation that a lot more doors would open. Like I would have TEDx on my resume and just the doors just, just swing wide open, right? Like that's just how it works. And that did not happen. So that expectation was false. Even though it's a great stamp of credibility, it gets people's attention. It looks really good. The other thing is that I, as a, I, I'm, I'm generally my own harshest critic, and I have trouble watching both of my TEDx speeches. And I didn't, it's not like, oh, I was terrible on stage. It's not like I muffled over my words or like I looked uncomfortable there. I mean, I've seen people on TEDx stages. They don't show you this, but I've seen them where they were sweating, where they were where they had stage fright, I've seen, I've seen some of those emotions behind the scenes and they can edit those out. The, the, the TEDx crews can edit out things, think, you know, mistakes you make, nervous moments, someone sweating profusely, um, 
someone pausing, they can edit that out. I didn't have any of that. I actually felt on, on both occasions, I felt very comfortable on stage. I, I love, I, I love, and when I say performance, performance is a paradox, it's an oxymoron because I don't feel like I'm performing. I feel like I'm being my authentic self. When I'm on a jujitsu mat, that's authentic. When I'm wrestling, that's authentic, right? When you're fighting, that's the real you fighting. Okay, when you're fighting, you I don't like that I did that. Well, that's the real you, and that's the real me, right? When you're training an intense sparring session, that is you. Well, I don't like when I'm up there speaking under with all you know the eyeballs on you and the pressure and the cameras, the bright lights, whatever we don't like, guess what? I got the feedback. Hey, Frank, that's you. That's you. That's how you move. That's how you sound. That's the those are the words you chose. That's the way you chose to organize the story. You had the right to organize it many different ways. These are the metaphors you decided to use. Um, that's the pace that you decided to speak at, right? I decided I spoke a little too fast in both. Would have been better if I'd had some pauses to let people absorb and digest things. So I spoke just like now. I didn't speak too fast because I was nervous. I spoke too fast because that's how I speak, right? That's how I speak. But that's not always the best way to go about it with that kind of audience. You should adapt. Just because I choose to speak very fast and I think fast doesn't mean that that was the best. For that audience, I should have slowed down more. I should have had more pauses. I could have picked some better metaphors. Um, so I can just know I can watch both of those speeches and I can literally find like 50 things that I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to fix that and that and that and that and that. I, I, it's hard for me to watch them as grateful as I am that I got them. It's hard. Like, I mean, like make me cringe hard to watch them because I'm like, I know that I'm a lot better than that. And I know that giving it giving the speech now, man, I could just crush that. And, but the reality is that's life. Like life is, it's not always, it's not about waiting for perfection. It's about right now. It's about the best you got right now today. Right. And I, did I do the best I could that I knew how to do? Did I do the best I could? Did I prepare like a, like a madman? You bet I did. Did I put my heart and soul into it? You bet I did. Did I, was I an expert on the topic? You bet I did. Was I creative at pitching uh, a committee that probably was like, no way. I mean, you know, it was like, no way. Was I creative at turning them around? I did. So there were a lot of things I did at a, at a high level, the best I knew how. But when I look at it, it's like, it's like one of the, you know, it's like losing a Super Bowl and you watch the video and you had balls that hit your hand and, you know, blocks that you should have made and reads, you know, you should have been able to read situations and read defenses or, read offenses and you miss this assignment or you miss this read. And it's just one of those where now that I'm a lot smarter and I'm more aware, I'm like, Oh my goodness. But on the other hand, on the other hand, sometimes th th this is why, you know, you and I talk about like accountability. I mean, we're doing the podcast. I'm accountable to you. You're, you're, you know, if this was just my own podcast, it's possible. I could just be like, well, I don't need to do it today because these things are more important. When you have another person, there's accountability there, whether it be a business partner, a podcast partner, it, you're way more likely to have to get it done because then I'm not only letting myself down, I'd be letting you down. And that's a big deal. So 
for for me, I thought the speech makes you accountable because it's the same way that a jiu-jitsu tournament. If I have a jiu-jitsu tournament, if I know the world championships are on June the 1st, okay, I can guarantee you that three or four months before that, I am training seriously and hard. I can, there is not going to be, barring an injury, there is not going to be any, well, when I feel like it training, because why? Because that date holds me accountable. The people, the athletes that I know, the highly determined and highly skilled athletes that I know are going to show up, they hold me accountable. They they make every practice super important. They make my diet and nutrition super important. They make my focus super important. They make everything I do, that, that date, those athletes that are going to show up, those referees that are going to show up, the video cameras that are going to show up, the friends that I'm going to see there, telling friends, telling my coach, yes, Frank, are you doing Worlds? Yes, I'm doing Worlds, coach. Telling them that, I can't just come in a week, oh, I'm not doing Worlds. No, uh, something came up work, I'm not doing Worlds now. I cannot do that. I, I'm in. I'm accountable now, right? So the beauty of that TEDx thing, again, there's a date, brother. Okay, Frank, guess what? We got, a, we got 10, 11 minutes for you to speak. You're a speaker now. We're going to put you on the, you know, on the website, whatever. And here's the date. We'll see you there. So at that point, you're like, well, I got two months, whatever. You're like, bro, you're not slacking. You're working. You're up late. You know, normally you, when you're on fire for something and when you're really preparing, truly preparing for something, it's amazing how little sleep you can go off of. Like it, it, it blowed my mind. Like, how little sleep can we go off of? So not our whole life, because I'm a big fan of sleep for recovery, for hormones. I'm a huge fan of sleep. But there are times in our life where something is there. There are times where sometimes we cut corners. And that was amazing. Like, man, I'm still able to perform at a pretty high level for that stretch. I couldn't do that a whole year. But the accountability of knowing you're going to be on stage, of knowing there's going to be cameras, of knowing... Everyone in jiu-jitsu, if they want to look at it, can read it. And so what I was told after the fact, I was like, you know, most of the receptions online are, pre- are good, you know, but, but there was a criticism that a, a small but vocal minority articulated on things like Reddit and even on the YouTube site itself where the, where the speech is. is like basically the criticism was like, look, Frank has got kind of a depressing view of jiu-jitsu and he had all these injuries. And that's a bad message to people about jujitsu because you're basically going to scare people, Frank. You had all these surgeries. You're telling us how rough it was, how painful it was, how far you pushed your body, and how dare you. That's a bad message, and that's not a good promotion of jujitsu. Now, my retort to that is, listen, maybe what they were saying, Noah, is true. Maybe it's not the best uh, promotion of jujitsu, but guess what? It's my story. It is my story. So I'm not going to sugarcoat my story, which ultimately speaks to the incredible, amazing power of jujitsu. Ultimately, my message is this is an amazing transformative power. It is, it should be in every school system. I mean, every kid should do it at least for a year or two. You would have a better society of people. The real, I've said this, the real United Nations is those jujitsu mats. No, there is no area of 
the country, this country that I live in, that I know of that functions better, more harmoniously across racial, across religious, across political ideologies, across whatever dividing lines we're talking about. I've never seen people get along better, a wide spectrum, than on those mats. The United Nations and the world leaders should go start dropping in to jujitsu schools and say, how do you do this? How do you make the people? You, you mean you mean you don't have lawsuits to keep the harmony here? You mean uh, we thought maybe you just people get sued a lot and that's how you keep the harmony. I mean, you don't have like a bunch of like uh, a Bible of like rules and regulations everyone has to follow. Is that is that the secret? How does that happen? That, so my message, believe me, is is about the incredible like the the, the healing power, the spirit building power that 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 jujitsu has it's amazing but in talking about that yes i have to talk about in my case we were the guinea pig generation we were just beating each other up we were just training with anybody we were trying to kill each other every day it was about there was it was very ego driven it wasn't about you know seeing the bigger bigger picture and preserving your body and 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 always looking out for your training partners i mean it wasn't as much of that especially in the early years, we were still trying to figure it out. We were guinea pigs. We were just, just going after each other, right? There, what, there wasn't, people didn't know how to drill like that. People can drill, can drill a lot smoother now. People didn't drill smooth like that years ago. I mean, it wasn't, there were very few you know, silky smooth, you know, suave drillers, like where, where, where they didn't hurt you. I mean, it's a lot of like, you know, it's even when you were drilling back in, in the early days, like, People were yanking on your, you know, guy just drill arm bars on you, your arm be hurting just from that, you know, just from trust. You didn't know any better. You're like, well, that's, I'm supposed to let him do it. So that criticism has, has been, you know, had been, been pointed at me. It's, it's my story. Could I have done a much better job of telling the story? Of course, of course. If I had had, this is the, this is a quality of me, Noah. I am, as you know, I'm a marathon speaker. So I have this thing where usually the longer that I talk, if I talk, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag here, but if I talk for an hour, I can almost gear on anything. I can almost guarantee you there'll be gold somewhere in that hour that we'll have something. We'll pull something out three, four, five minutes, 10 minutes out of it and be like, damn, that was good. That was like, that was on point or that was interesting or that was a good metaphor. That was good wordplay. I guarantee it. But but the problem there is when you've only got 10 minutes, and you got the scripted speech. You don't have the time. People aren't going to be patient enough to wait for you in an ADD society. Right. We're a very ADHD society. It's like, well, you don't have 45 minutes to get going. Martin Luther King Jr. was Martin Luther King Jr. is the best speaker I've ever seen. Best speaker I've ever seen was Martin Luther King Jr. He had plenty of moments, plenty of long speeches where they were like, you had to bear with him for the volcanic, like incredible moments. You had to bear with him. There were times where he was very academic, very monotone, best speaker in the world, man. Like he had moments where it was like, I mean, it's not that exciting. And then boom, he'd hit you with a crescendo. He'd hit you with it. He'd make his voice erupt and whatever and put goosebumps down you, right? And so when you left the speech, just the five or six or 10 riveting minutes had you like, oh, damn. He's the greatest ever. There were plenty of moments in that speech that were like, okay, it's kind of academic. It's kind of monotone. 
So, oh yeah, and and Frank, I'm, I want to interrupt you here. We do have about ten minutes left. That you asked me okay. to uh, keep keep it to ten minutes. So yeah. Uh, yeah, we're we're inside we're inside so, that ten minutes. What the TEDx taught me, and this is what you have to look for. You always have to look for the silver lining. Thank you for that, Noah. You always have to look for the silver lining. The silver lining was, hey, Frank, Frank doesn't like scripted speeches. Well, guess what? It comes with a package, scripted speech. So guess what? I had to learn to like scripted speeches. I had to learn to like them. They have their place. They have their place. If you're going to be a public speaker, you better get used to having some scripted speeches. There'll be a little wiggle. You can build a little wiggle in, but you got to have material planned in case you go up there, you draw a blank. problem with improvisation and spontaneity is it's not an all-the-time thing. Sometimes your improvisation IQ is just through the roof. Your spontaneity IQ, you know, your Jim Carrey, your Rob Williams, it's all point. And sometimes it might fall flat. So it helps to have some canned material, right? If you have some canned material when you're not, when you can't, when, you're, when your brain's not firing like it normally does, right? So, so in any event, it, it got me used to appreciating and understanding, hey, Frank, if you're ever going to be good at public speaking, you got to have scripted material. You got to get good. You got to be better at writing scripted material and you got to be better at delivering it. So that was one thing. The other thing I noticed is I noticed how many parallels there are between giving a speech and speech writing and even like journalism, you know, even writing an, a, a, a newspaper article. There's so many similarities and principles. Like, for instance, I would say the biggest thing for someone writing a speech. And this is true of your life, by the way. The biggest thing when you go to write a speech is the most important thing at the forefront of your mind. It's not, well, what should I write? What should I put in there? It's this. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. What do you want? What is an ending? What is a destiny? What is a destination that you would be like, wow, like the seminal moment for you? There might not be one, but let's just pick one. What's the end look like? What's the one idea, right? Because Ted is ideas worth sharing. If these people only, if I speak for 11 minutes, they only remember one idea. What's that idea? What is that one idea? That's the end. And so when you know the end, you, you're better at what's the steps? Like, how do I get to the end, right? Then you got to know. It's just like anywhere else. You want to get to a destination. You want to climb a mountain. Well, you better, you, you got to know what to aim at before you even know, well, what's the blueprint? What's the map? How do I get there? What's the strategy? You just need, you need to have a very precise thing you're aiming at. This is a very precise destination. So you got to know that with your speech. A lot of people, Noah, they don't. They just know the topic, but they don't know specifically, this is my core argument. If they only remember one thing, because a lot of us want people to remember 50 things or 500 things, but they don't, no matter how brilliant you are worth. They want to remember one or two things. What's that one? Begin with the end in mind. This is the thing I'm going to leave them with. Now that you know this is the thing I'm leaving with, it's like, okay, what steps would I, have, would I take? What material, what steps can get me from there to there? Ideally, when you're going to begin with the end in mind, in general, just like a great storyteller with writing, when you're going to begin with the end in mind, now I know the ending. Guess what, Noah? Now I know the beginning. Why? Because normally in a great story, we want to come full circle. We want to come full circle. So we know the ending. Let's start. Let's begin. Let's have a teaser for the ending. Let me give you one example. In the movie Fight Club, perfectly fitting movie to cite for our podcast. In Fight Club, 
the opening scene, I believe, is like it's uh, what's his name? Uh, what, what's what's his name? Um, um, what is his name? The, the lead character in, in Fight Club. Is it um, DiCaprio? It's Brad. Oh, Brad Pitt. Okay. Brad Pitt's character is in a room with a gun to his head. I believe that that's how it starts. Okay. Well, at the end of the movie, the final climactic scene, where do you think we're, we're, we're dropped off? With, with, with him, Brad Pitt's character, with a gun to his head. What are we waiting to see? He's going to pull the trigger. Right? That movie came full circle. It, it knew the ending. The ending is going to be him in there. Does he, is, does, does he, is the world so messed up that he wants to take his own life? 30-some-year-old guy, whatever. Beginning of the movie teased us. And it's teasing us to there. So when you know the ending, you'll know the beginning. The beginning should be something that takes me full circle when I get there. You want to think about full circle. Once you know the ending, think of full circle. Well, full circle means you got to give me a little bit of what's in the ending, a little bit, set the stage in the beginning. Make these two things have something to do. Now you can give me those layers in between that take me on the journey step by step. Those are two very important things if you go to write a speech, whether it's a five-minute speech, whether it's a 10-minute speech, uh, that's very important. That's very important, a lot of creative writing, too. So, Noah, I, I know we're, we're near the end now. I've hogged all the time to talk about this. We agreed that I would coming on. But um, what's, you know, final four or five minutes here, what's, uh, what's on your mind, buddy? No, no, I, I enjoy, um, I, I've actually enjoyed a lot to hear you unravel um, a bit of the mystery here. Um, the, you know, the secret sauce, as it, as it may, about your experience in developing this TEDx talk, so, or uh, both of them. Um, yeah, I, while you were speaking, I did uh, look over to see, you know, yeah, your, that first talk has 150,000 views. Um, you know, so. Uh, My second one, like, what, 1,500? And, and the crazy thing is, the second talk is, in terms of technique, in terms of stage presence, even the material, because I had more experience, it's a better talk. And just to show people how weird the world is, right? Don't always judge yourself by how others see you or judge you or how many clicks or likes. I know in my heart that that second speech is a superior, better speech than the first. And the first is getting way more views. So that's life is strange. Mm. Right. Sometimes the audience just speaks. It's like, why are the Kardashians more popular than than, you know, than than um, than whatever, some Buddhist monk somewhere or wh whatever. Right. Like some the, the greatest teacher in the world who who's teaching kindergartners or something. Right. And it's like why the, that greatest kindergarten teacher in the world could have a podca podcast or whatever tomorrow might not do well. Kardashians kill it. Right. The world doesn't make sense, brother. It, it, you just got to accept. You just got to accept what is. Right. Very true. The world is not fair. It's not fair. Um, but um, yeah, I I did enjoy our talk today, or I should say, your speech about the speech or your monologue. You know, but um, I appreciate you answering my questions. Um, you know, uh, I think for future for future talk, we can talk about. A little bit, you know, I went a little bit more detail into uh, how you started with that, your, your, the story arc, you know, that narrative, that arc of the narrative. It reminds me of the, um, uh, a lot of the book, um, The War of Art, 
um, that um, that I've listened to a couple times. I cannot remember the author's name at the second, um, but um, he talks about uh, you know overcoming resistance, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast. And um, you know, I think there's that there's a lot of benefit into um, spending time visualizing what is your end. Um, you know, that's again another great uh, reference there to Franklin Covey. Uh, begin, begin with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. He he talks a lot about that when this in the in the seven highly effective Stephen. habits. Oh, Stephen Covey. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, what. The, Franklin Covey. Yeah, Frank. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, th- this is company, but Stephen Covey is, was the was the uh, one of the um, co-founders of it. And yeah. uh, that, so important, Noah. People get away from that one. It goes one ear at the other. That is one that people really have to, to fuse themselves to. That's a very important principle for writing, for speaking, and for designing your life. It's a wonderful one. Absolutely. Well, you know, my family's asking me to uh, uh, hop off the podcast so we can get some lunch going here. Let me um, say one more thing really quick. I do want to give a final thanks to the committees at TEDx, UNLV, Gail, and Brett, and the other wonderful people. I'm so grateful. Like, that was those were amazing experiences. And um, we got to talk next time about the world champion who gave me that call a couple of days later. Like, again, the kind of like the, this great victory, this great triumph, and then the depression that can follow. Like it's, it's a, it's a real thing. And for a lot of athletes and, and high performers. So. Oh yeah. That, no, actually that is a, that right there, what you're touching on is even more important, which is to plan, plan for, the next day yeah have a plan for the next day um yeah no every time you achieve a you know you visualize that goal and and you envision it and you work on it and you the, you have the build up to it and then you have the climax of 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 that event or you know a book release or something and then you have that fall off because you spend so much of your mental energy into the buildup and, and to the achieving that goal, you don't, it's a, there's actually some aftercare of your mental status uh, and how you, you should recover. Cause you could fall into some swamps there. Uh, some performance swamps. That with marriage. No, I think the same people feel that, you know, again, the honeymoon phase, I think a lot of people feel the same thing with marriage. They just, there's so much build and there's so much endorphins and excitement and anticipation and and I I have a new quote really quick. I know we're, I know you, you got to go to lunch, but the quote I wrote the other day and I just coined it is uh, a lot of times um, anticipation exceeds actualization. Isn't that pretty good? That's a pretty good one. Oh, I'm Antici- writing that one down. Anticipation. I got to think of another word, another verb there. But anticipation. Oftentimes, anticipation exceeds actualization, and it could be marriage, it could be a lot of things. But we have to work that into our life. We have to when you when you know that this is the one thing though, it's like we say in the fight sports, that the 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 punch that will knock you out is the punch you don't see coming. The punch it doesn't even have to be as hard. The point is when they say the punch that knock you out is the one you don't see coming. What they're saying is you can take a lot of the hard punches in life, bro. You can take a lot of the hard punches in the cage yeah. as long as you see them coming. As long as you see them coming and you're able to move a little bit, you can take those shots because you're able to get out of the way a little bit of them. You're prepared. And in life, 
as long as we know like this phenomenon you and I are talking about where you can have that triumph and you can have that depression or that downer feeling when you're expecting it and you're aware of it, it's not as devastating because you prepare for it. You expect it, you know, so that's part of it. Just having an awareness of like, Hey, this is kind of how life is. You can go through that little pocket, ride it out, coping strategies. You'll, you'll bounce back and no problem. So anyway, you go have, have lunch, Noah. It's been a great, I want to, I, 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 I would, you know, uh, I do want to do a recent analogy of what you just said, by the way. Yeah. You know, it's maybe it's not the punch, but it's the kick that you catch, but you don't recognize, you don't see that other foot coming at you. And Thanks. Impa Kasengane, he did not expect, he did, you know, yeah, you caught that kick, but did you plan for that other kick? And, yeah. um, yeah. Um, but you know, it's, and, and then it's not just that, that, you know, and he got knocked out and that was a, that is definitely a knockout of the century. Um, it's the next day. And if you go on to Impa's, um, uh, Instagram uh, the next day, you know, and, and read what he wrote, um, following, following that event, um, that's, that's where the winner in Impaka Sengane is he might have lost that fight, but he hasn't lost the fight of his life. Yeah, so. he was very gracious and sportsmanlike. And um, you know, there's some things that happen in life like that. Like, how do you know, bro? How do you know? Like that that's nowhere in your preparation. You know, you I mean, what do you do next time? You, next time somebody throws a kick like that, what do you do? Not catch it? I mean, what do you do? Is he going to start moving out of the way of kicks? Is he going to start, you know, you know, how is he going to to handle that? Like, what adjustments do you make? Um, you know what I would do at this point, just to, just to flip it? If I could, I would get a screenshot. I would get a good screenshot of that kick, of, of him being knocked out like that, you know, of going back put it on a shirt and send it to him and say, wear this, wear this. And then just, and if he wears that like a badge, then, you know, he's like, this is, this is part of my fighter narrative now. Embrace, embrace that. Yeah. This is what's interesting. I have to say this. This is a good thought. What's interesting is a lot of people will see that guy knocked out from that kick, Right. It, it, it ignominity right you know it, 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 ignominious now right and it's like he's going to be on every highlight reel and 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 people show him knocked out like oh man it sucks you know you're getting knocked out what's interesting is people can feel sorry for a guy like that or you know whatever people think right negative stuff but the reality is that guy that fighter we're talking about that even the one that got knocked out He's living his dream. He's pursuing things. He is, you know, what's sadder are people who sit on the sidelines and never get knocked out, but have knocked themselves away from their dreams, away from the things that really matter to them, away from their passions. And they're knocked out in their own way. They're not living and they think that they are. And they look at a guy like him and say, oh, poor guy, maybe do something else. Oh, poor guy. Oh, stupid. That was stupid. Yeah. You should have and it's like, wait, the guy who got knocked out is living. He is more living and hunting his dreams than the vast majority of people. I don't feel pity. Like in this case, in this particular case where he got up, he's fine. He's a sportsman. He's going to, he's a young guy. He's going to bounce back. 
I don't feel sorry for him. I feel Good. sorry for the people that sit on their couches at their house who are never going to squeeze everything, every ounce of their potential. I feel sorry for them. I feel yeah. like that's worse. I feel like that's worse than be knocked out. I'd rather be knocked out. Just me, just me personally. I'm not, I'd rather be knocked out a few times going for things in life, going for things that matter, that I'm passionate about, trying to share and inspire people, trying to, 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 to confront your fears, trying to be everything you can be. I'd rather get knocked out and roughed up many times along the way than be the keyboard warrior who is sitting there and criticizing and analyzing mm -hmm. this and mocking the guy who got knocked out or whatever, not, not yep. realizing how, how, how half asleep they are, how half asleep a lot of people are. Perfect. This guy, this guy was asleep and got knocked out and he woke up and he's fine and he loves yep. life, loves what he does. Perfect. Perfect stuff. Um, all right. Well, uh, this is going to be a wrap to our Friday, Friday special edition of uh, Everyman BJJ. Um, EverymanBJJ.com. We have our, we have all the podcasts uh, there in audio format. Um, also, we have, the team has an email, email account, EverymanBJJ at gmail.com. We also have Twitter and um, although I don't, I, we haven't really messed much with posting on Twitter or on uh, Instagram. We have those handles too, um, as well as some stuff on Reddit. Again, you know, you and I are really busy. And uh, so we just, you know, we really don't use those things yet, but I think in, in, in the coming year or so, you know, we're going to, we're going to develop those uh, social media channels um, as well. Um, but it's been good talking to you today, Frank. You know, I'm looking forward to our talk on Sunday, uh, 1.30 Eastern, or rather uh, 1.30 Pacific, uh, 4.30, 4.30 Eastern, Sunday afternoon, usually on Sundays. You and I will do the full uh, sports wrap with uh, uh, other topics. And I do want to go into a little bit more of what do you do after the knockout? This is, uh, it's been a good show, and I appreciate your time today. Frank, do you have any last words? I, I was just sitting there looking and admiring the, 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 the Saturday night swag I have on. You know, it's Friday, but I got on some Saturday night swag. So I was like, man, that's that 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 shirt looks pretty good on camera. So I was like, awesome. All right. Well, well I'll see you, on, I'll see you on Sunday. Thank you, Enjoy sir. You take care. All right. Bye. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.